Hello, internet friends. Welcome to another episode of Full Stack Whatever. I'm your host, Michael Lomans, and today I'm excited to bring you a conversation with Everett Katigbat. Everett has had a fascinating career so far with early roles at Facebook, Pinterest, and Stripe. He's one of those prototypical, multi-talented creatives that are hungry for a challenge in a space or with a medium they haven't worked with before. We talked about his path from East LA to the Bay Area and covered some of our reflections on our time at Facebook in the early 2010s. We spoke about his perspectives as a generalist versus being a specialist and what the next creative challenges are that he wants to take on. Here is episode nine, Pounding the Pavement. Hey, Everett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you here. Excited to A, dig into your career so far, how you got into this, some of the big lessons that you've learned. But then also, I think specifically at Stripe, you are working on Stripe Press, which is quite an unusual Mm -hmm. type of project area of a company. And even at Facebook, you were doing things in Analog Research Lab, which at that time was probably, especially for tech companies, really Mm -hmm. special and different. So yeah, I'm excited to dig into the aspects that aren't often talked about in these conversations and also like in a career that is quite unique Mm -hmm. compared to probably Mm -hmm. many other people in tech. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And I guess like you, you in a nutshell cracked it where you said you did a lot of crazy stuff. I just should just put that on the top of my LinkedIn. Like I do crazy stuff. Yeah. Crazy, but crazy appropriate. That's how I like to think about it. That's awesome. The first question for me is always, how did you get into design? What got you Mm -hmm. there? And what was the first period of your career like? It's interesting because it's not interesting, but it is what it is. I'd say I almost certainly did not want to be a designer when I started studying design because I went to design school, went to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. But My first, I guess like my first attempt at a career in education was in music and specifically audio engineering and sound design. I studied that first, like right out of high school, I got a recording engineer's degree and was like working in studios and that was okay. But like being a musician and coming from the creative side of music to going to the engineering side, it sounds glamorous. It sounds creative, but then you realize like, the operative in there is engineering, like recording engineering. And you're there as a technical person and you're helping bring an artist's vision to life, but you have very little creative input. And also I was working like artist hours, midnight to like 10 in the morning was, was, was really rough. At the time, my wife now, we had a daughter relatively young and I decided while she was still really young, I wanted to go back and pursue something different. And I was always able to draw and paint and stuff, but I almost explicitly did not want to do graphic design because what I knew about it at the time was just my friends that were making flyers and doing like relatively ephemeral things. And I didn't think that was interesting or lucrative, but I figured I'd give it a shot. First, I went to the, I'm trying to remember, the Art Institute in Santa Monica. And then I really got bit by the design bug. And I said, if I'm going to do this, especially for a career and having a young family, I said, I got to really like swing hard for the fences. So I went to the best school that I knew that also happened to be in my backyard, which was Art Center of Pasadena. I didn't know what I wanted to do in design because also at that age and also coming from more of an arts background, I was drawn towards the making of stuff. So I was in the letterpress studio a lot, lived in the printmaking and photo labs. I was doing like more fine art, if anything. And in my wildest dreams, I would have worked designing books or owning a letterpress shop and then realizing like, there's no money in letterpress. (laughs) This is the opposite of why I got into it was like to provide and support my family. I would have took out a fat loan at Art Center and ran a letterpress shop and that would have just defeated the purpose of it. So yeah, you have to probably be like top 1% letter pressers to yeah. get even remotely close to being able to make that lucrative. And even, even then you're not doing like artistic prints all the time. Like you're doing jobs for people, for sure. like wedding invitations. If you're really good and have a vision, then you can be an artist doing it. But at the same time, like it's not particularly lucrative. So. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I love this term swing for the fences. I haven't heard it a lot yet when we talk Mm -hmm. about early career. How would you qualify that more in in your mind now? Mm -hmm. What was your thinking then? What does swinging for the fences look like? When I committed and said, okay, I'm going to really take design seriously as a career. This was before in-house at tech was even a thing. I don't think it was like a defined path. It was like early 2000s. So I think the examples I looked at were 
creative director at Nike or at Apple. And I think it's those bigger consumer companies. It was my North Star. I was like, I want, I want to work at one of these like really world-renowned brands and help produce world-class award-winning work. That in my head was the definition of success as a creative director. So that's how I approached it. Very much like thinking about concept and design, not so much like the visual, I mean, aesthetics and things were really important, but I was really focused on like the story I was trying to tell, whether it was a poster or something that was more sequentially designed. And I never thought I would really lean into the narrative side of things. I thought I would just still stay more on the graphic design side of things. But once I got out of school and started figuring stuff out and seeing what was out there, kind of just led me down a very different path. And I'd say I probably dramatically strayed from that original vision, but that was the thing that was driving me. It was like, I'm going to be a executive creative director at one of these like really high profile brands. That's awesome. That's, I like how crisp that is. And I, I remember in those years, like always on the internet, there, the, there would be the yearly, what's the biggest brand right now? And it would be mm-hmm. either like Nike, Coca-Cola, Apple was eventually coming up. So yeah. I can totally see that. So how did you, what was your, the step from going to back to school to your first job? Like, what was that mm-hmm. first step like? Yeah, I guess hmm, I was just pounding the pavement. Again, had a physical portfolio. I had a mm-hmm. website, but it was so janky and it was all dreamweavered. And I was not, not, still not a very, very competent front end developer, but I can hack my way around it. But back then, I just threw something on the internet and largely forgot about it. And I like went into offices with my portfolio and showed them like a physical book. And wait, was that a physical book of websites and of web work as well? Or it was like, <laughs> no. like a physical book of multiple pieces? It, of it was media, multiple basically. stuff. And again, like looking back at my portfolio, then like coming right out of school, like think at face value, it seemed all over the place. I had mm-hmm. packaging design, I had editorial design, magazine spreads, I had paintings and illustrations and even some experimental film stuff. It's almost like a reflection of where I'm at now. And it was like forecasting how my career would go because it wasn't any one thing. Some of my friends that studied motion design had these sick portfolios and it was all motion design. And now they're working on films and Marvel movies and stuff, but it seems more straightforward for them. I think I was struggling a little in the early days, how to get crisp myself of what I am as a creative. But I was just like figuring it out as well. So talked to as many folks. And then I was mainly freelancing in the beginning. And being in LA, it's like Hollywood is like the predominant industry. I don't know if that's the case now, but at least for designers, like it's the work is easier to find, like doing stuff for like movies and theatrical and TV shows and stuff. So I was doing movie poster key art random stuff, packaging for DVDs and stuff, but it was all like freelance stuff. It wasn't meant to be long-term. Any um, Apple trailer websites? No, none I of that. I was obsessed <laughs> with Apple trailers for the longest yeah. time. That was like the... Yeah, that stuff is so cool, man. Trailers, trailer editing is its whole other craft because it's very apparent when you watch like a crappy film, but the trailer was excellent. You're like, oh man, I got suckered by the really good trailer. There are whole trailer editing houses that focus on trailers, which is pretty wild. But for me as a designer, yeah, I was working entertainment. Didn't really float my boat per se, but it was fine getting experience. My very first job professionally in-house full-time was at the Getty Museum and it was an exhibition designer there. So Again, meandering path, doing movie posters to experiential kind of physical things, you know? And I loved it there. I was there for a few years and probably still my favorite job I've ever had, but also reality of being a designer in a museum financially is not like you have to keep evolving from that. So I think the red line of this question of, I think, specialist versus generalist is an interesting one. I vividly remember having that same struggle and challenge early on in my career. And I think that until we said this title product designer for the digital designers, it was, oh, we do everything and it's okay. And that in the 2000 to 2012 era, it was like, if you're a generalist, then that almost seemed like it was less wanted. People wanted specialists, people deemed specialists to be better. Um, And so generalism was this awkward middle which you are now an expert at and Uh and a leader in the field. 
Was that also how it went on in your mind, seeing your motion designer contemporaries? Oh, yeah, they're focused. They're doing the stuff and I'm doing everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess like coming from a musical background, again, I see them as the same thing in a weird way. But I play a lot of random instruments, mainly because I like playing music. Like music is the goal for me, not like being a guitarist. So if... Like I'm with my friends and we want to start a band, but we don't have a drummer. Like I'll play drums because without it, you don't have a band. So that's been my approach to being a creative and being a designer. Oftentimes it, it ends up in, in the video format because video as a medium, at least until now, I think before was like the most inaccessible creative medium. And I'd say like my specialty is in like storytelling, like creative and kind of crafting a narrative. And then my generalities are just more in being medium agnostic. So here's a cool story. It might work better for a podcast. And then maybe down the road, we turn it into video, but there's also all these visual assets that need to happen. So I try to think more higher level about that stuff and being able to kind of at least produce prototypes in different mediums has served me pretty well because I don't have to go to a video producer and say like, hey, I have this idea. Can you help me make it? I can do a prototype and then show people and then figure out if they want to pursue it further. And then I can bring on like more muscle to help it out. So that's how I think having like different tools in my arsenal is really just because I want to be able to visualize something without having to bring on additional overhead or any more kind of baggage to the thing before it's even like been realized, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe I might be going. One of the things that it refers back to for me is in a previous conversation, I talked with Rasmus Anderson and he said that his concept of a prototype is significantly different than how other people tend to see it. We make a interactive mock-up of a product and for him, a prototype is something that is very functional, but not production ready already. Right, right. And I think in this case, the prototype is almost the sketch for what your thinking is. And you have enough tools, probably like 80-20 rule, right? Like you have 20% of the tools that you have is enough to talk in work, not in like words or writing it down. Right. Or in some case it is. And I find the breadth of the prototype word to be really interesting then. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely tools and mediums that I'm more comfortable with and that changes over time. Now I've been doing film almost more exclusively so I can produce something on my own that's relatively polished that in my mind, like, oh, this is a rough thing. But for someone seeing it, they're like, whoa, this is like really polished. I guess that's the kind of designer's dilemma too, where you don't want to show a mock-up of something in your mind, it's not ready, but it always gets perceived as like, oh, this is good. Like, let's ship it. And you're like, no, there's so much more work to do on it. So that's how I see it too. I use it on the one hand as a visual brief and proof of concept. And that's how I've had more success. And more specifically at Stripe, it's Stripe is a very like written word culture and we pride ourselves on like docs and briefs and all that stuff. I really appreciate that. But for me to be able to cut through that noise in the organization, as soon as I show something visual, like it just resonates so differently as opposed to here's a very thoughtful brief and here's why I want to do stuff. And here's even the concept in words. And I just like, show them it and they're like, oh, wow, we should totally do this thing. There's a quite a similarity, I think, between Stripe and where I'm at with, mm -hmm. with Brex this way, where there is a lot of written culture. Yeah. And I sometimes call that almost like the litigation of product. I find that almost the way that there's a handoff between design and engineering or there's a handoff between different people in an editorial process of film, it's helpful to have something written maybe 50%, 75% of the way, then mm -hmm. trying to create something that is based on those early thoughts mm -hmm. and having that inform again what gets written up. I think that there's this very nice relationship, a nice dance maybe even that you yeah, can do yeah. between those two moments. But getting back to um, you working at the Getty Museum, what came after that? How long were you there? Mm -hmm. I was there for about two and a half years. I freelanced as an exhibition designer for a little bit longer after that. So roughly three years in that museum world. And what was the next step in your path? I guess the thing that ultimately I knew I needed to move on from there, but I thought it was like such a good place to learn and cut my teeth. And I 
definitely developed my environmental design skills because I, I was designing in 3D, but not just posters on the wall or even environmental graphics. I was doing interior architecture and casework design. And so there's still even in that role as an exhibition designer, pretty multidisciplinary. But I knew that I eventually had to move on because the pay frankly sucked there. And I was like sitting in traffic is the worst thing ever. I lived on the east side of LA and the Gettys on the oh, west we side. Yeah. So if you know anything about this, like I was, the 405 is the worst freeway on the planet, or at least in the in America. And I had to drive it every day. And it was two hours each way every day just to drive like a 15 mile commute. So that was one of the biggest things. And I knew I wanted to live in San Francisco. One of my design mentors when I was in school his advice to me, which was like not design advice, but also like it was really much more life advice. He said, find the place that you want to live. And then this is place that really speaks to you as a city. And then the work will come, but don't move somewhere because of the job per se. Like I think he probably had some bad experiences and that, that resonated with me the more I thought about it. Cause I was like, oh, I'll move anywhere for like whatever job. But in hindsight, I really just wanted to be in the Bay area. And again, it was at a time where being in-house at tech was like not really a thing. And definitely designers almost like explicitly were like, I'm never going to do that. That sounds terrible. It was like a stupid job. So I again started coming up to the Bay pretty regularly, pounding the pavement, like taking the Muni with my physical portfolio. Everyone I met with was like architecture firms, interior design firms, I met with all the museums here. Um, and two tech companies I talked to were Google, one of my friends from Art Center was there in the pre-Creative Labs days. So he was an in-house kind of a brand designer. I met early Google and it was early Facebook was who I met with. And once I met both sides, but specifically Facebook, I was like, wow, these folks are very different than like the buttoned up kind of formal interviews and like didn't feel like much of a hierarchy there. And it was, it was a totally different world for me. Once I, I started getting like offers at places, but Again, like nothing, it wasn't like a dramatic jump from the museum. It was like more of a lateral move. And then the Facebook guys were like super, I don't know, just something really energizing about that. So once I committed to that, that's kind of what brought me up to the Bay Area and also was like my first kind of pivot into the tech world. So Amazing. What's interesting about that, it's the same experience that Pete Hunt had, mm -hmm. who we had on a couple episodes ago, Yeah, yeah. who was like, yeah, I was like going through this Google interview and everything seemed very cut and dry. And then I met the Facebook people and they had a completely different energy about yeah. them. And they didn't even care about my GPA or they didn't even look at my resume, basically. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that was a lot of, there was, there was definitely Wild Westy vibes at that moment in time. Mm. But also, I think their systems were very much focused on, oh, who are the people who are hungry to right. make a thing happen? Yeah, let's optimize for that. And they can learn on the job what they need to learn to actually get this work done. Well, what was your experience in those early Facebook days? I didn't know what to expect. I was just generally excited and frankly knew very little about like web design and, and that form of product development. Because I was at that transition period where product designer was still nascent term. It wasn't really a defined thing. And most folks I knew that did that were reversed into it from the engineering side. They had an aesthetic sensibilities, but really were front-end engineers, you know? Um, and then it was just like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I don't think they knew what to do with me originally, <laughs> which I think was the point which you just mentioned. But I was asking like my manager at the time, what should I work on? And they're like, oh, go talk to them, see what they're doing and figure it out. And I'm used to being delegated, like you're on this exhibition or you're designing this poster for this film. So I had to rewire my brain and I definitely had to tap into my entrepreneurial sensibilities and figure out how to find opportunities and how could I plug in. But that was probably the biggest learning in general from Facebook. And I mean, we did great work, but like I had to learn how to be like more self-driven and how to find opportunities and understand like the bigger goals of the company and like how I, as an individual contributor, could impact that. And I think that's still a skill that's quite lacking in the industry is like, usually in early stage companies, you find that's what, why people get attracted to it. But I think in the later stage, it's still just like, I'm a designer at a big company and there's a little bit of that malaise that's there. And I think even at later stages, you can still be like entrepreneurial and find your way, but you just kind of have to know how to work like that. So that's a pretty valuable skill that I learned. 
and it also sounds like it's partially the culture that is established, yeah. right? It's, you can scale pretty far with this entrepreneurial culture. Right. I right. think probably Facebook got to like 10,000 people with the same energy and vibe. Right. And then it went a little more big company-ish. Whereas from what I've seen, 200, 300, 500 mm -hmm. people already get real serious real yeah. corporate nowadays. Yeah, it's definitely, I think there's been a shift. And even like at this point in time right now, it's all about being hyper lean and super efficient. They're just not only counting costs, like operating costs as a business, but you as a resource, like how are you allocating your talent in a way that like it's hyper efficient, but it's not the creative process per se, you know, and, and you need some of that elbow room to like, you know, throw ideas at the wall and experiment and do stuff. So I think there is a little bit of a balance that needs to be baked in, but. Yeah. The flip side of that is also, yeah. well, if you have less people and you have less time like to spend mm -hmm. and less energy, that also mm -hmm. could breed creativity yeah, and yeah. make you have to work differently. And if you're right. if you don't have time, if you don't have like two weeks to write the brief and perfect yeah. the brief, then yeah. maybe it's easier to start with that early sketch, that early prototype. Right. Yeah. Um, so what were some of the early projects that you worked on at Facebook? Oh man, they're super corny stuff. <laughs> I think I mean it was literally just designing brochures, marketing stuff. Yeah. I mean, Facebook, the product didn't have much of a, there wasn't really advertising and all that stuff. None of these things exist. It was the core product really. So a lot of the stuff I did early on was working with sales and marketing people to help them produce collateral. I designed like the early facebook.com slash marketing. That was like basically me and one of the early marketing folks and helping build out their advertising hub for self-serve advertisers, stuff like that. Then I started doing event things. And I think one of the bigger things that we started to do was their developers conference, the F8 conference. Mm -hmm. So on the same day I started there, I started exactly at the same time as this guy, Ben Barry, who's was the co-founder of the analog research lab with me and also still like a close friend and sometimes collaborator whenever I can. The two of us were trying to figure out how to plug in our very different skill set from like a sea of engineers. You know? And then once we started doing this developer conference, that's when we really started to put our own individual personal skills to use, created this more like hackery environment and bringing kind of people into our world, the internal Facebook hacker culture world, bringing like a broader set of, of external developers into that and creating this nouvelle hacker vibe because hacking is, has been around since like the Stuart Brand days and all these things. But I don't think it was like a thing that our generation could really connect with because hacking, computer hacking and all that stuff is, is more of a derogatory thing these days. So I think that was the first thing where we really got to flex our muscles, but bring our unique vision and things to a very different audience. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. I wasn't there in those earlier years, but I, there was a clear fingerprint of someone or a group of people had affected culture here mm -hmm. and that you could find that strewn throughout the buildings. You could find mm -hmm. that on the internal communication tools. And if you really look at the ingredients that was just the Facebook product, which was like very much boxes and boxes and a like thumb and this very specific aesthetic of icons yeah, yeah. that was still super limited. And Facebook was like a dry design setup, very UX heavy. That expanded really quickly, I think, in 2009, 10, 11, 12 into something much more rounded, like both physically, because that's what we did in that time. Right. But also much more rounded in like a conceptual sense and much broader than oh yeah, I'm here with my friends on this website and talking about the coffee that I had or the right, concert right. that I saw. Yeah. When you'd mentioned like they, they didn't care if you, you had like, you were valedictorian or something like that. I think that was pretty instilled early on, like with the core team that started there. From an internal culture perspective, I think one of the first things they did that just really set the tone was, I forget the accuracy of this story, so don't you know, fully quote me on this, but... I know Mark wanted artwork in the office and I think Aaron Satig at the time was the first designer and they brought in David Cho, the street artist, to just go bananas over every square inch of the building. And in a way, it was just like, how do we make this look cool like relatively quickly? 
But I think that just set the tone for the culture, you know, and it was a perfect metaphor for their culture and the product and also like this new wave of like tech companies. And then when we came on board, it was another thing that kind of signaled to me because like coming from East LA and those parts, like street art culture was very personal to me. And I never thought that I would incorporate that in my professional life. And here I am in this like office in Palo Alto that's covered in graffiti. I thought, oh man, this is going to be super cool. I just took that and ran with it. And so did Ben Barry. And we just kept making all kinds of random stuff that had that spirit. Yeah, the stencils on the walls were definitely a vibe Mm -hmm. of those early 2010s. I remember coming in just after Gowalla had also been acquired. Ah, And all of a sudden that Gowalla logo was just all (laughs) over the office and places. And it was just this very like small amount of people that joined that they didn't join to bring that product into, to fold it into Facebook. They really truly joined as like a talent acquisition, mm-hmm. but they wanted to set their stamp on the culture. And I think most, if not every single person from that team has had some kind of impact on Facebook, both the ones that came with the acquisition, as well as like Tim and Philip that came in through the Instagram acquisition. Right, right. Because they ended up at Instagram. There's almost this through line of 09, 2010, 2011 startups that eventually folded into Facebook and how they reverberated into the environment at that time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, was was saying, I guess it's appropriate craziness is like how I think of my approach, but I maybe don't do it like the strategic work behind that enough justice because I kind of talk about it as being this like very organic thing. But at least from my perspective, it was like a very strategic design exercise. Yeah, there was graffiti on the walls, but how do you scale that culture that isn't just aesthetics? And how does it fold its way into like our operating principles and the way that we work together? And then ultimately I talked to so many high profile designers that had joined well after me that I was like, oh man, I can't believe this person's working here. And they would always like say, oh, once we saw the analog lab and we felt the the spirit of the company, we knew that it was very different and we wanted to be a part of it. And I think that's a big goal is like, obviously like talent recruiting, talent brand, differentiating us from an early Google and early Apple thing where it was like hiring valedictorians and Mm -hmm. us hiring the dropouts. That's in many ways more impactful because they just know like, I can just start making stuff right now that helped differentiate during those early kind of talent war days. And I think using the office as like, first of all, treating it as like a living kind of organic part of the culture. Oftentimes office space is like a very static thing. You have an architect firm that kind of comes in like externally and they design and they deliver an office and you work in it and it largely remains unchanged. But the fact that it grew in layers and it shifted with the people, oftentimes it would very physically change because we're like, hey, this wall isn't working right here. Let's take it out and like move it. And it, it was like, such a prototype in in and of itself. I mean, I think that never existed before our time at Facebook. So yeah, I don't know, I'm rambling. Yeah, no, or random walls yeah. being turned into whiteboards yeah. with some whiteboard paint. There were bars all over the place, yeah. right? Like they all had their own yeah. branding and mm-hmm. they all had different happy hours. And it's not, we're having a team happy hour. No, it was like the Freeze Ultra Lounge right. was having yeah. their Friday happy hour after all hands. And people would just like go there, you know, to glorify like drinking and all this kind yes. of stuff. But I think it was a place that organically created community amongst people. This again, then I always say I can go in depth onto what I feel about remote culture right now mm-hmm. and how it's like the polar opposite of that. Yeah, I like this through line of the people with the high GPAs and then the dropouts, but then also how the people that wanted to build and that wanted to be in that messier space right, right. also created space for one another. And I I think that at the time when you joined a company like Facebook, there was a significant amount of probably imposter syndrome immediately because everyone here is smart. But then there was also this big welcome of like, hey, we're just doing the best we can to get this thing to be great. And in whatever which way you can help, you are so welcome to join us. Mm -hmm. I think that was the feeling in a way. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, man. And like I said, I didn't have tech company on my radar when I was looking for jobs. And a lot of it was just about finding people that I connected with. Because for me, I value who are the people that I work with, even up to the founder. Is this someone that I can like follow and that I trust? You know, other people are like, I just want to work with the best people. Like, I don't care if they're jerks, but I know that we're going to get amazing work because this person is the best in their field. And I tend to not work like that just because I'm a chiller dude. I like working with friends that I like, but 
you know, there's nothing wrong with like that approach to thing. But at those early days at Facebook, there was very much a strong kind of collective sense of the shared vision was like really strong there. I haven't really seen it afterwards. But I think it's another kind of example of when I talk about appropriateness, like that was right for Facebook at the time, certainly not right for them now. And it wasn't right for the wave of companies that came at the time that kind of spawned after this social era. Because every small company that was sprouting up, basically they even went as far as to contact the architects that we worked with and say, hey, we want our office to look like that. Can you do it? And I just don't think that it was intrinsic in their culture. They were thinking about it from aesthetic purposes, mainly because Facebook was such a rocket ship and they're like, oh, we want to emulate them, but it wasn't quite right for them. So we want an open plan. Yeah, open plans. And even open plans now, like, they're finding it in a post-COVID world, like, yeah, it was, it's not working for us. Yeah. So you have to adapt. And I guess like the thing that points to is Stuart Brand, this is like famous book of how buildings learn, which is again, you build this thing that is supposed to be like literally a concrete structure, like something that is permanent, but it, it's not it like reacts to the people and the things. And over time it changes its purpose. So that's also how we approach not only the physical space, but the company culture in general. So. Nice. You spent just over four years at Facebook. Then you moved on to join Pinterest. Yes. I'm really interested to hear what were the differences? Like, how did you look at yourself in that moment? Did you have more clarity on the type of work that you wanted to do? How did you look at that transition? Moving to Pinterest, it felt like it was an intuitive decision because leaving Facebook at a high point, I feel like for myself, but also not having a plan after that. My whole time at Facebook and before, it was very clear that I had a short-term plan and a lot of kind of real world things where I was like, okay, I have student loans. I need to get all these things chipped away at. So I almost had like a roadmap that led me up until the end of my time at Facebook. And then at that point, when I decided to join Pinterest, I just wasn't even thinking about it. I was like, oh, this looks like a cool thing, but I didn't have this kind of like foresight of like where, like how I wanted that to be my next step. But it was easy in the sense because like I knew most of the early team there, many of them came from Facebook. It felt like a little kind of sub thing that was just still very much connected to Facebook for me. Looking yeah. to the type of work yeah. that you did at Facebook mm-hmm. and like the way that you approached the, the branding and the communication mm-hmm. design work. Was there anything that transferred into mm-hmm. Pinterest and were there things that translated and were there also things that you took new approaches mm-hmm. on? A lot of the stuff that we were doing in the analog research lab and ultimately like with the arts program, it wasn't expected from a tech company, let alone Facebook. And in many ways, it just made so much sense for Pinterest because it's a very kind of creative product. It's trying to facilitate more making of stuff. So I thought that going there, it would be more of a no-brainer for me to get those those very physical skills to like an external facing brand. I think the challenge at Pinterest was wasn't like that the product wasn't great. I think they had early kind of perception barriers that they were trying to overcome, predominantly that it was just so tied to weddings and very specific things that resonate more with female consumers and stuff there. When they started the product, they knew that it was a much broader creative tool for anybody. And I think that's when I shifted from, okay, there's a lot of strategic work that needs to be done. And also like building the company, it was 30 people when I started there. So there's a lot of foundational work that needed to happen because the company grew from a user perspective, like relatively quickly. So I think they were playing catch up in many ways. It sounds a lot like early Instagram where the acquired team was 13 people. Yeah. yeah. And there were already millions of users, servers burning, all this kind yeah, of stuff happening. It's so wild. Where you're talking about that, the early perception of Pinterest, mm-hmm. and I guess it's trying to shift away from that or like growing the understanding of the market on what Pinterest can be for more people. Mm-hmm. Were there any key projects or key lessons you think of mm-hmm. still to this day? Yeah. I- I mean, again, it was thinking and shaping through making of stuff. So a lot of the early team, I managed a facet of the creative team, which was the brand creative team. So we had like a writing team, research, product design and brand design. And that was like the kind of creative org early on. And a lot of the work we did was trying to show that story as opposed to tell it. So we made videos that kind of tried to illustrate the use case. And that, I guess, was a direct takeaway from Facebook because I know we talked a lot about the internal culture in the lab, but we also produced their first videos, again, at a time when 
that type of product marketing and video stuff wasn't really a thing too. We were trying to tell a story around the product and we're doing that with very rudimentary tools like Canon 5Ds and stuff. But at the time, those were like pretty revolutionary. Oh, rocket science. Uh, It's yeah. the best kind of consumer thing that you can make like legitimate films on. So taking that kind of that skill set from like producing videos at Facebook early on and storytelling in general, that was actually like really what translated the best to Pinterest early on. Painting a picture of what it could be if you really unlock the potential of the product. That was fun. We did a lot of video stuff early on and hired some folks from Facebook that that are now still doing like amazing work in film and storytelling. I think that was something that that Pinterest had early on that was really good that companies don't invest in enough early on. It's like narrative, really solid narrative work. Do you reflect on any specific unlock that happened because of this brand work? Unlock with the company or like with me? like Either or, right? But the whole thing in tech at the time was product-led growth. Mm-hmm. People will find the products. Maybe we'll put out like some app install ad, just about it, right? And then there, there came this wave of, hey, we're going to market these tech products mm-hmm. because we should actually market ourselves the, the way that many other companies market their products. Was there something that shifted for Pinterest because of the work that you and your team put out? I think there's still something we said about just the rapid kind of viral product adoption that happens through a very well-designed product. And I think a lot of folks maybe on the agency side or maybe that come from more of a proper brand background, they don't see the overlap between the two. They just think, oh, you need a really solid brand narrative or a brand strategy those things need to live together. Also from an org design perspective, what Evan, the co-founder of Pinterest was a designer as well. And like the first product designer at Pinterest, I think he saw the creative org as like having those things like coexist together. Because in many companies, like like brand design lives more with marketing and product design lives more with engineering. And at Pinterest, it was, it was together. And that kind of helped because the brand was so prevalent through the product experience. But as we started to refine the strategy and start to express it through things like photography and marketing and stuff, I don't say there was like one huge inflection point, but I think incrementally over time, it started to broaden its audience. And I think it was not because there was a radical pivot, but because they didn't stray from that core audience that originally was very rooted in like weddings and that kind of crafty stuff. But they started to expand use cases and categories and stuff. That was more methodical than we need like an exponential jump in like a certain demographic. Yeah. There was a an experience I had when I visited the Airtable website for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it made me think a lot about Pinterest at the time because they had this one section of the website that was all the use cases or mm-hmm. demos or templates or whatever they called it. And you're looking at it and you're like, oh, this is like some database spreadsheet on steroids. Awesome. Of course, I'm going to do some kind of team management, recruiting stuff in that. Sure, I can manage my analog film roles or something, but that's like what you have in your own mind. The immediate next thing that was on their demo page was cattle management. Oh, wow. And I very specifically remember seeing that and being like, they get it because- One of the things that they had was a very rudimentary barcode scanner on your phone that when you Mm -hmm. just open that Airtable website or permalink that you have, it's like a Google form, but it's got a camera. And so you zap the thing and boom, you get all of the data from your table that talks about this Mm -hmm. one cow that you're looking at, which to me was like, you're immediately swinging beyond the technology minded people that would see this and be like, oh, this is cooler than Sheets. Right, right. Yeah. It really reminded me of Pinterest because I saw when Pinterest started showing various different use cases in the world and that expansion was was happening. Yeah, that's cool. That's an interesting thing. I think Airtable, yeah, they have a unique challenge too where they many ways are reinventing like the kind of spreadsheety things and there's a lot of tools out there that do it. But I think like doing it from an audience focus perspective is really interesting. You spent two and a half years-ish at Pinterest. Eventually you ended up, and this is where I want to spend more time talking because mm-hmm. I think you, you ended up in this really interesting spot at Stripe where you work on Stripe Press. 
which is a very unique thing, I think, in the tech industry, which kind yeah, of has yeah. this through line of analog research lab mm-hmm. through to Stripe Press. Can you explain a bit what the the inception of Stripe Press was and how you think about it now in retrospect as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so moving to Stripe, again, so Stripe Press didn't exist. And it was still early stage Stripe, very akin to like my time when I joined Facebook. So they had like a couple hundred employees and we're still very rooted in like, how do we tell a story about like payments, knowing that their vision is more about economic infrastructure. So a lot of my early work on the design team was helping articulate that message. But then Stripe Press almost, I don't even know how to describe it. Cause so we talked about Stripe having a very kind of like strong written culture which means they're avid readers just in general. I think personality-wise, everyone there is a book fiend. I've never seen it in any other company. Like people read there, stacks mm. of books. It's pretty wild. I really enjoy reading. Very different than some of the academic things that, that we produce, but I, I really love books. And as a designer, like still like the romanticized version of being a designer is like the ultimately perfectly typeset book. So Stripe Press actually started because the first book we produced was the High Growth Handbook. It was by this an investor and an advisor named Elad Gill. And he just approached the Collison brothers, the founders of Stripe Press, Stripe and Stripe Press too. And he said, hey, I have all of this kind of wealth of information. A lot of it already existed in his blog and in different formats. Can we publish this in some way? And I think he said, okay, this is awesome. We should produce it, but if we're going to do it, we should figure out how to operationalize this. It doesn't make sense to just do like one book. And that really was the genesis of it. We did also have a magazine that was more engineering focused called Increment, but Stripe Press was always just meant to like produce really dense books and like really well-designed, but like stuff that you can really kind of live with for a long period of time. And it's a very different kind of mindset to reading our books as opposed to like any type of like quote unquote branded content stuff. So we started the first year was like four books, I think, some of them are different in subject matter, but we weren't trying to like have any very narrow guidelines editorially in what we wanted. We just wanted to find really interesting authors that had a unique perspective that was in this vein of like science and technological progress. We had like some of the early Instagram folks that, that did this book called Get Together that was about community building, but... Oh yeah, it's like mm-hmm. an orange, like yeah. yellow cover, yeah. mm-hmm. gold. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, theirs was very stripe pressy because it was almost like a tactical handbook. Like, here's how to build a community very directly. It wasn't like theoretically or philosophically. So that's how the book line started. And we had a designer that was also like working on the books. And I started doing some stuff, but it, I really work on Stripe Press more as a writer and as an editor, expanding it beyond books. So like podcasts and films, short films and like feature length documentaries and stuff. That's been my focus over the past couple of years is, okay, the books are in a good rhythm. We'll never be a high volume publisher. We just want quality bespoke work, but I've been trying to keep it fresh and also develop Stripe Press's own internal voice. Because largely we publish other authors' books. Someone comes to us with a topic and a manuscript, and it's a very traditional means to produce it. But we ourselves also like our writers and editors. So how do we define our own voice and what are topics that pique our interest? And I work on like producing that content. Awesome. Four books in the first year. Mm -hmm. That may not sound like much, but I'm pretty sure that any book publisher would say that that's probably a lot to start with. Yeah. When you say that you publish it, someone comes with a manuscript, you publish it in a pretty traditional way. What's the timeline of one of these books? Yeah, I guess it differs with every author because it's like, again, we're not on a cadence where we're like, okay, like Q1, like author, here's your deadline. I think we just try and work with them. And part of the premise too was that some of the topics that we produce and some of the books might not have a home at a traditional publisher, which is also why they're into us. Like we want it to be a bit of that space that we're not trying to sell like a penguin random house or like Mm -hmm. these other publishers, but we want like content of substance. So we want the author to be able to like, like write and have time to do it. So I'd say like the writing and development side is probably different because it just really depends on how motivated the author is or how far along they are with their, from a production standpoint, 
Oh man, that is a good question. Cause I don't have to, I'd say that's a bit out of like my area of focus. I don't deal with the tactical side of publishing. I don't know, let's say six months, but that's mm-hmm. probably wildly inaccurate because you have to typeset the manuscript and you know, there's like rounds of editing that happen. Obviously like material testing for cover stuff. If we want to do something with like foil stamped or debossed things, like that takes a little bit of time. And then, yeah, I don't know. So going from books to different medium, specifically looking at the fact that you've been at Stripe for almost seven years. Mm-hmm. Are there any big lessons from your time at Stripe? Because generally when you look at seven years, I've always reflected on like longer stints at companies as they organically get cut up into eras or phases in a way. Through that lens, how would you try and define your time at Stripe? Yeah, I've definitely had to. It's weird because I, I say that I reinvented myself several times there, but in many ways, I'm still doing the same thing as when I started. I'm now on the communications team, so it's a big departure. I've always been on the design team. I'd say design at Stripe from the beginning has been more more about like the craft of design. Again, not like, I mean, it is like pixel perfection thing and obviously like the user experience and all that stuff. It's been less so like an, a narrative-based team. Like it's not a storytelling team per se, but at Stripe, the communications team is. So for me, it was more of a natural fit I mean, it was also like an opportunity that I saw early on at Stripe as well. When I mentioned companies don't focus on narrative work early enough, at least I think. And the same was true at Stripe where like, I just went in with my own camera equipment and started producing videos. And then they realized like, oh man, it was like such like a visceral way to, to see like our product in the real world. Because when you talk about a payments API, it doesn't really resonate with people. So what's what do you mean? Like, uh, I know, yeah. They're so very random. interesting uh, human things that yes. we can all understand. <laughs> Trying to put more of a human voice and face to that thing was also something that I found. But in terms of venting myself or just even more so like lessons from Facebook and Pinterest and other startups, I think I've just been able to find my Zen in, in like a rapid changing environment. And my first manager at Facebook was Ben Blumenfeld, who now runs Designer Fund. He used to always tell me when I would get so like frustrated at work in the early days, he's like, it's a very Bruce Lee thing, but he's like, you have to be like water. You have to go around these things. And I never really applied that until my time at Stripe. But I will say there's something about the culture at Stripe and like my life stage and career stage that it's really clicked that allowed me to stay there for a much extended period of time. And I'm still like there feeling pretty that I'm able to contribute at a high level and have impact. Stripe Press is editorially autonomous from Stripe, but it still has these positive brand impacts. So I think people see it as something that is integral to the brand. It's not a superficial thing. So that's what keeps me going. It's like, this isn't a random side project. It's actually like pretty integral to the company's voice. So Nice. That's really awesome to hear because I think often these things are deemed as like, oh, this is a fun little side thing in the corner. Mm-hmm. But seeing how it connects back to the greater good is obviously very important. We are here sitting at your dining table, and which is now a theme. Like either <laughs> yeah. a lot of these are recorded at my dining table or the guest's dining table. There's a lot of music in your life still. Yeah. There are a lot of different types of media in your life professionally. You reflect upon your time at Stripe as reinventing yourself. I think that your Facebook mm-hmm. time was also reinventing yourself probably and as well as the Pinterest time. Looking ahead, what are some of the things that really have piqued your interest over and over again? Maybe some themes that you're interested in exploring or just something new that's come up? Like, where do you personally see the next couple of years? Where do you personally see your next creative energy take place? I've definitely found my groove in the art of filmmaking because I think it is one of those mother forms of art, the same as architecture is also considered like this mother form of things. Like filmmaking for me too, it, because it encompasses so many aspects of creativity, I don't feel it's just the thing like a camera and editing software. At any point in the filmmaking process, you're flexing pretty different muscles, whether you're shooting behind the camera, that is like an aesthetic thing where you're trying to get the framing right to evoke a certain emotion and specifically documentary. I think like just being able to like capture world events in real time and tell stories in that way for me has been pretty interesting as I 
start to think about what I want to do like down the road. But again, there's also stuff. One of my friends has been producing plays, like theater plays out in London. I don't know if you, you know Saleo, right? Yeah. So, so yep. Saleo's partner, Cater, has been doing awesome work with these productions. And I saw one of the main ones that she's doing right now is called 222, A Ghost Story. And when I saw that, I was like, man, I had never thought about like writing or doing stuff for stage, but it was such a cool experience knowing that I knew some of the people behind it. It's like, I'd love to do that. Or I'd love to dig into like musicals and stuff where it's like merging like film and video and music, but telling a story in the, through songs and stuff. Because I don't know, I think, yeah, you can just do really weird stuff in there. And like, I'm all about like trying new things. So maybe I'll have a musical at some point. I'm still pitching ideas, but that's, we'll see. I really like hearing that because if we go back to the start of this conversation, the portfolio full of things that seem like everything in the kitchen sink in a way. Mm -hmm. And then hearing that the through line is grabbing that and honing that as a weapon almost seems mm -hmm. to be still the theme of what you are interested in. Like yeah, moving, definitely. like taking your skills and then migrating it one medium over and then applying yeah. and learning and then migrating it one medium over there. Yeah. On the one hand, sometimes I think like, oh God, I just need to focus. And I get so jealous of people that are like, are the deep experts for this like hero dreams of sushi thing where that's all he does. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I have like deep envy and also at the same time I'm like, oh, I wouldn't do in that one thing. That's not how my brain is wired. And that's not what floats my boat is I like acquiring new skills. And that for me is the creative part. It's not like necessarily the output of that. It's just I really enjoy like learning something new, adding it to my skill set, and yeah, just seeing what could happen with it. So th that's like the funner part for me. Yeah. It's very much like, I mean, obviously, like I produced this film about Stuart Brand, but he has like a very explicit kind of rubric for how he thinks about problems and what is like drawing his attention to it to the point where like he can't stop thinking about it. And then he works on it and for maybe a good four years. And then it like sets the thing free and it becomes its own thing. And then he moves on to something else. And in many ways, I take that as like a roadmap for myself, not literally like every four years, but I see what's piquing my interest and like I move closer to it until it's consumed me. So tapping in a little bit to that specialist versus generalist way, I think that there are a lot of, you know, challenging and negative emotions that come with that, especially when you're early in your career but that probably is a, it's not something that repeats, but it probably rhymes in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Did you find yourself challenged with that, oh, why am I not a specialist question in your career? Was that a motif or? Yeah, I do. I, and I think that's par for the course, I guess. Like I'll probably still be like that until I'm like in my old age where it's not that I question myself, but it is like more of a rhetorical thing. Even as a musician, I'm like, God, why can't I just play the guitar? It's like, well, now I'm learning accordion. That's like a silly thing because I knew nothing about accordion. I just wanted to try something completely different and I'm okay at it, but I'll never be the best accordionist at it. And I, I always look at that, but at the same time, like now I can play accordion well enough to sit in with people and it's like another sound. So I think that's a cool thing. I still think about it from a like creative and design profession thing. But I don't, just don't let it bother me. It's just, if anything, it's something just to get me to take a step back and think about like where I want to go next. Do I want to double down? Because a lot of what I've been doing at Stripe has been like film and video related. I could feasibly like continue to do that. But at the same time, there's also other things out there and I don't want to pigeonhole myself. So I don't, I'm just like, if anything, more open to what comes in my field of view. For me, it's just more about how compelling is the subject and the, or the thing or the product or the story? Is this something that's out there that I can see myself attaching to? Because I like very obscure, random things. So. What's the most obscure thing that you like? Oh, geez. <laughs> I, I mean, accordion is pretty... Is going yeah, I mean, I guess so. I guess like you know, musically, I like a lot of like weird sounds and stuff. So I'm always looking for instruments, like traditional instruments that are played in non-traditional ways. I really like that stuff. Um. I don't know. I just think coming from like my background of just being in like in LA and like that kind of street scene and skateboarding, 
I'm like have a lot of tattoos. I grew up playing punk music and stuff, but I also am very deep into nerdy topics. I think the more cerebral, the better it is for me. And like now I'm going deep in rabbit holes of AI and like trying to understand what does it mean when AGI is fully attained and how do we do that in a responsible way? That for me is like such a it's such a philosophical subject, but it's also it's a very pertinent one because it's like happening in real time right now. So I don't know. Like I don't think if people saw me, they would be like, "Oh, you must be like really into these things." But for me, it's like I can't stop thinking about it. It's weird. I love the obsession for obscure and broad things. <laughs> you mentioned. I'm going to just paraphrase it. You mentioned. Well, when there's not a drummer, I'm just going to go play the drums. Where in your career have you felt most like that drummer? My time at Pinterest, I think when we started and like my North Star was like, I'm going to be a creative director. And what most students don't know and early stage people is that, or earlier in your career, I mean, is that also comes with a deal of like people management. And ultimately like an executive creative director is not a creative per se. Like maybe they've been through the trenches, but at a certain point you're, you're like a organizational person and you're more of a business person than you are on the creative side. If you're lucky, you get to flex your creative muscles a lot up there, but in, in your average kind of corporate setting, that's often not the case. So I'd say that was probably it where I came on and was like, I'll manage people. Like I've been a creative and that seems like the right trajectory and like hiring and building a team and managing that. And I guess that was in hindsight, maybe not my strong suit. I'm not, I don't, maybe I was a terrible manager. You can probably ask my folks, but the same time, like being a maker, uh, like I was doing myself a disservice by like not leaning into that stuff. But there, I don't know, maybe there is something about like helping scale that approach by like, like mentoring other people. But I don't think, I don't think I was quite ready for it at that time, but I did it. And then like, it wasn't terrible, but it, it, I learned a lot more about myself than actually like doing creative work by like managing people. I don't manage anyone now. But I think if I took another crack at it, I'd probably be a lot better in hindsight, like kind of having learned from that. I think, yeah, I think that's also a really important lesson. And so many people in their career encounter this point of, well, sh am I going to be a manager now? Yeah. Having personally gone back and forth, I think that the first time that I did it was way more important in understanding when I went back to IC of what does my manager deal with? Mm-hmm. Because once you understand the full three, 360 degrees of it, then you can also be a better person to right. the person that leads you. And you can also better maybe define for them, hey, this is what I need from you right now. Yeah. And you're probably also okay saying that because I mean, very much encountered when I was at first managing, I was like, why they should just tell me what they want. And then, but then you realize a lot of people also don't know yet. And so you have to help them. You have to guide them on that path. I'm getting that out. But I really love that the time you were a drummer in a work setting was actually <laughs> the time that you managed. I think that the, that's a really, yeah, yeah I think yeah. that rounds out actually the, the whole broad interest, like broadly mm -hmm. applicable profile that you have created mm -hmm. for yourself. And what I think Please correct me if I'm wrong. I would actually love to hear your thoughts on this as well. What I think is interesting about this is, yes, you have a very general set of interests. You apply yourself very broadly. But as a theme, you've gone very deep on that ability. And in a way, there is a specialism in being a generalist. Yeah, for sure. Which is very intriguing mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Part of it is, one, I'm not a good sleeper. I don't sleep. I'm one of these short sleeper people. And I, I tend to get obsessed with yeah, just whatever, if it's a skill set, say filmmaking, like I've always been able to see things through video, but not myself physically be able to produce it. And a lot of this was learning on the job and figuring it out to the point where I feel pretty competent as like a DP and a director now that I can go in as a self-taught person and produce something pretty high quality. But a lot of that was just like, honestly, living on YouTube and also deconstructing things and that's how I approach other things. Even the accordion too. I just sat with it for long periods of time when we were all in shelter in place and it came out now being able to play the accordion. I never thought I would be able to do it. It's such a daunting instrument, you know? Yeah. And I approach that with everything. Amazing. Awesome. I really loved having you walk me through your career, but also through that lens of like this approach for this 
this curiosity for different mediums, this curiosity for different instruments, this curiosity for different approaches to working and, and your reflections mm-hmm. on that. Thank you for being here. Thanks again for your time. This awesome. is great. Of course. Well, thanks for having me and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, even with some of the beautiful Sutro Towers radio frequencies hitting the recording. Oh well, you live and you learn. If you're interested in future episodes, please subscribe. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out. I hope to see you next week when my guest is Dan Rubin.